this is a sweet experience. My last time preaching here at Epiphany was at the fourth anniversary, six years ago. I must have done something wrong. Because <laughs> they, they just haven't been bombarding me with invitations. And it's very sweet that this morning I do it, and this is my home church. I love that. Everywhere I travel around the world, uh, people ask me about my home church, and I just love bragging on Epiphany. Uh, and they say, what do you do there? <laughs> I said, I soak up the gospel. That's why I'm there. So I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you haven't, you are seriously comatose. You live in a dramatically broken world. And because it's broken, it just won't function the way God intended it for, for it to function. And I could spend a lot of time trying to s describe that brokenness for you, but I decided to do something, probably the first time this is ever done at Epiphany, it may be the last time, it may be another six years before you see me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to play you a song. It's written by one of my favorite theologians, Bob Dylan. Uh, and this song is a dramatic picturing of the brokenness of this world. It's broken, 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 broken. When I listen to this song, I about halfway through say, okay, I get it. It's, it's broken. Uh, you listen and pay attention to the words on the screen, and then I'll jump back up here. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use driving, ain't no use joking. Yeah. 
for his glory and your good, God has chosen you to live in this broken world. And that brokenness will enter your door. You won't escape the brokenness of your world. On October 19th of 2014, my life changed. I didn't want my life to change I hadn't planned for my life to change. I wasn't expecting for my life to change, but my life changed. I had what I thought were minor physical symptoms. I called my doctor. He said, well, you live right next to Jefferson Hospital. Just go to Jefferson Hospital. They'll check you out. I thought I'd have a few minutes of a visit. They'd give me some medication send me home. Ten days later, I was still in the hospital. When I arrived at the hospital, I was in acute renal failure. My kidneys were dying, and I didn't know it. The first three days in the hospital were days of unspeakable suffering. I experienced a level of pain I did not know existed. My body went into full body uh, convulsions, and it was grim lost 65% of my kidney function. The months followed were very hard because what followed was five surgeries. I had to face the reality that I would never be the phys physical same man again. Now pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. When the unwanted the unexpected, the hard, the dark, the difficult enters your door, you will always preach some kind of gospel to yourself. I say this all the time, and when I say it, people often laugh, but I'm really quite serious. No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You see, it's, it's true. Most of us learned it's best not to move our lips. And when you're talking to yourself, don't change places. They'll think you're crazy. They'll put you away. But you are in a constant conversation with yourself. The things that you say to you, about you, about God, about meaning and purpose, about life, are profoundly important. They're formative of your desires. They're formative of your thoughts. They're formative of your words. They're formative of your actions. Everyone in this room is a theologian. Everyone in this room is a philosopher. Everyone in this room is an archaeologist. And you will dig through the mound of your existence to make sense out of life. There's a preacher you listen to way more than preachers like me that are on this stage. And that preacher is you. Now, I want you to share with me right now a moment of holy honesty. Are you ready? None of your 
spiritualistic answers that are the right answers but don't really describe you, okay? Fire your inner lawyer. I can say that because I have an inner law firm. <laughs> and answer this question. Be honest right now. This is a moment for us, by God's appointment, to look into our hearts. When you're going through the hard, the difficult, the unwanted, the unexpected, what do you say to you? What do you say to you about God? About life? About meaning and purpose? I want to take you this morning to a psalm of trouble. Psalm 27. And I'd like you to stand with me. We'll read this psalm together. I'll get you started, and you take on from there. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we stand to read because we know that your word is truth. So we don't need to pray about that. What we pray is that you would open our hearts to your truth. We're so capable of being self-righteous. We're so capable of being defensive. We're so capable of sitting and listening for the person next to us. So we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would humbly and joyfully receive your word of truth. And we pray that as we leave this room, in the days and weeks and months to come, we'll look back on this moment and say, God was with us, and it's been a good thing. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Scholars who study these things say that Psalm 27 was written in one of two very dark moments in the life of David. Some say it was written when David was fleeing from the murderous, vengeful, jealous wrath of King Saul. Maybe you remember the story. David had been a faithful servant to Saul. He had done no wrong thing against Saul. But the anointing of God was on David, and he was doing amazing things, and Saul was eaten with jealousy. 
and was out to do David harm. It was a situation of gross personal injustice. Other scholars say that this psalm was written when David was fleeing from his son Absalom, one of the darkest stories in Scripture. David was king, and Absalom was conspiring to take his throne. Now, you know if it's a monarchy, if you're going to take the king's throne, the king has to die. Absalom was plotting the death of his own dad. And when you read the story, you know that this story just can't have a good ending. And there comes this moment when it's reported to David that Absalom has died and David doesn't rejoice. He crumbles in one of the most poignant moments in the Old Testament and cries out, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. Listen, this psalm is written out of what is real, out of a situation of gross personal injustice, out of a shocking situation of deep family betrayal. This is not pie-in-the-sky theology. This is written out of the darkest moments of everyday life between the already and the not yet. I love the Psalms. I think the Psalms are in the Bible to keep us honest. Because the faith that's depicted in the Psalms is messy. It's not pristine and easy. The Psalms get me up in the morning. Psalms give me reason to continue. Man, if you can't relate to the Psalms, you just can't relate. The Psalms describes us, our lives. Now, if you notice, this Psalm of trouble doesn't begin with trouble. This Psalm of trouble begins with theology. And there's a lesson in that. That there's never a moment in your life where the theology of the Word of God is more important than when you're going through trouble. You better be for yourself a good biblical theologian. Let me just say this. It's impossible to be a human being and not be a theologian. You're always looking at life theologically. You're always talking to yourself theology. You do theology every day. You do it a thousand times a day. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you've ever chosen or done is rooted in your practical functional theology. You're a theologian. And sometimes I'm, we're, I'm, I think that I'm, we're not aware of the gap between our functional theology and our confessional theology. The theology you preach to you is different than the theology you gladly sing on Sunday morning. It doesn't match. The Lord is light. What is that word picture? Well, it's a word picture in Scripture in its biggest, grandest form for what is holy and pure and just and right. There's one sitting on the throne of the universe who's a definition of everything that's pure and everything that's holy and everything that's righteous and everything that's true. The Lord is salvation. What does salvation mean? Deliverance from evil, evil 
internal, evil, external. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you and I are going to be invited to the one funeral we actually want to attend. We're going to be invited to the funeral of sin and death because sin and death will die. The Lord is stronghold. What does that word point to? It points to the Old Testament fortified city, uh, thick walls, a place of refuge and protection, a place to run and hide. The Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is stronghold. Now you have to pay real careful attention at this moment because I'm about to confuse you. What I've given you is bad unbiblical, it will hurt you theology. Are you confused? You can say, you can say you are, it's okay. Why? Why would I say that? Because if you look at that passage, I left a word out three times. It's a word that dramatically changes what these words say. Do you know what the word was? Say it. Say it like you mean it. You see, David is not saying somewhere out there in the distant universe is this God who is light. Somewhere detached from my life, unable to reach me, is this God who is salvation. Somewhere out there in the cosmos, way out there, who knows where, is this one who is stronghold. He's saying, no, glorious grace has connected me to this one who is light. Glorious grace has connected me to this one who is salvation. Glorious grace has connected me to this one who is Stronghold. There better be a big my in the middle of your theology. Listen. Good, accurate, biblical, the biblical theology does not just define God for you. It redefines who you are as his child. Because if you're not getting your identity vertically, you're going to shop for it horizontally. No wonder we place such burdens on one another in marriage. We're looking for marriage, what we're only going to get from the one who is light and salvation, from the Lord. We're shopping horizontally for where we're going to get vertically. Listen, there is a wonderful Messiah. You just don't happen to be married to him. We, we, place, we place our identity on our children. What a burden for a child to bear. Those little self-appointed sinner self-sovereigns are never going to pull that off. In case you don't realize, your children don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I give mommy and daddy value and purpose today? Get a grip, parent. That's not their job. Your work is not meant to give you identity. Your boss didn't say, I started this business because there are human beings who lack identity. Your neighbors aren't living next to you because they have messianic intentions toward you. You see, it's very, very important 
that you understand that good biblical theology doesn't just define who God is. It redefines who you are as his children. There better be a my in the middle of your theology. Now, if that's not radical enough, it's not even what's radical about this psalm. Look what happens next. All of a sudden, this psalm gets very real. Uh, dark, if you would. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, though an army encamp against me, though war rise against me. I don't know about you, but I love how shockingly honest the Bible is. And I love that it is at the same time gloriously hopeful. And the hope doesn't negate the honesty, and the honesty doesn't diminish the hope. You need to understand this, that biblical faith will never require you to deny reality. Never. If you have to deny reality to reach personal peace, you may get temporary peace, but what you're exercising is not biblical faith. I mean, there are stories in the Bible that are so weird and tawdry that if they were in a paperback book at your local drugstore, you wouldn't pick it up and buy it. Now, why are they in the Bible? Because God wants us to know that the arms of His grace wrap themselves around every human experience, no matter how dark. There is no human moment beyond the strength of the power of the grace of God. I need to say this to you, though. Although you do not need to deny the dark realities that you will face, if you allow those realities to capture your heart and command your meditation, you're going down. That distinction is very important. I think that's a problem that many of us have is that we allow our minds to be captured and controlled by difficult things so much that those things now replace God as the center of our functional meditation. I love the story because it's so provocative of Israel in the Valley of Elah. They're facing the Philistine army. Now this shouldn't be a problem because they're the army of the Lord of hosts. He said, you go in there, and I will deliver those nations into your hands. I am the Lord God Almighty. They armed themselves for battle, and the first day, rather than the army come out, this giant Goliath comes out and says, send me your best. Guess what the army of Israel does? back to the tents, and they hide in their tents and worry and commiserate for 40 days. Now, I would propose to you that's a meditation problem. Because the more you meditate on Goliath, the bigger he gets. He hasn't grown at all, thank you. But he's gotten bigger. 
and he's gotten scarier. That's meditation stuff. You know what's in those tents? A collection of divine glory amnesiacs. There's amnesia in those tents. And I like to say that never happens to me, but it does happen to me. I wish I could say that this, this past 18 months has been easy for me, but it hasn't been easy. I mean, for some of us, a flat tire on a busy day can drive us 75% of the way to atheism. God, if you love me, my tires would always have air in them. So David arrives. There, there's humor in the story. There's so much humor in the Bible that we miss. He's delivering a lunch to his brothers, bread and cheese. And they immediately begin to mock him. You know, they accuse him of just wanting to hang around with the real men. Tell him to go home and take care of his little lambs. It's a put down. And David asks the fateful question, why aren't we fighting? Why aren't we fighting? I'll go. What? Is he delusional? Is he arrogant? No, that statement is the result of meditation. You say, Paul, how do you know that? Because when David goes, he says this, he delivered, speaking of God, he delivered the lion and he delivered the bear and he will deliver this Philistine this day. God doesn't call you to anything because you're able. He calls you because he's able. That's why he calls you. In fact, he calls the weak to demonstrate his glory. When I read that passage and David begins to walk into that valley, I hear the timpani drums begin to roll. And they're getting louder as he gets closer to Goliath. And Goliath says, am I a dog that you're going to send me a stick? That's not a compliment. And David's carrying a stupid sling and five stones. And the drums are rolling, and now he starts doing this with the sling, and I hear the cymbals begin to crash. You know there's going to be some kind of carnage. And as the drama builds, he lets go of that sling, and the stone hits the temple of that giant knocks him out, and David runs over and takes out the giant sword and cuts off his head. But if you get to New York, get to the Metropolitan Museum of New York, there's this gorgeous painting of this young man holding this severed head by the hair. Glory of God. See, that's meditation. Be honest. When you're going through difficulty... And when you have to wait in the middle of that difficulty, what commands your meditation? If you meditate on your problems, here's what will happen. Your problems will get bigger and your God will get smaller. That's what will happen. You don't have to deny reality. 
But you must not let those dark realities control your thoughts and desires. Now, I want you to think with me. If you were in this situation, try to put yourself in this situation, where there was literally an army encamped against you to eat up your flesh. Don't you like that word picture? <laughs> to gnaw on your bones. They want to have you for lunch. If you were against people that you knew good and well were seeking to do you harm. Can you get into that? What would you pray for? What would be the one thing that you would ask of God? I want to encourage again. Don't give the spiritual right answer. Be honest with yourself. What would you ask of God? What would be the one thing you'd say, God, if you love me, if you're near me, if you care for me, give me this. Well, how about weapons? That makes sense to me. Just give me weapons bigger than my enemy. You're the Lord of warfare. You can handle that. How about just open the earth and swallow them? You've done that before. Laws of nature are controlled by you. Or, or how about this? I think this is the prayer we pray. Most often in these situations, one thing I want, get me out of here. Right? I call those vacuum cleaner prayers. Lord, just suck me out and drop me somewhere else. Here's so much of our prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You don't even need many words. Just make a sucking sound, because that's what you want. That's where this psalm gets its most radical to us. Because there's that contrast between 2 and 3 and verse 4. What is the thing that David asked for? What is the one thing? Listen to these words. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His holy temple. I just want to go to church. Seriously? Are you nuts? Anybody want to go to church with me? Now, now either David is so super spiritual that we can't relate to him, or he's a bit daft and delusional, or he's on to something. Why would he pray that? Why would he want that? What is it that David knows that we need to get a hold of? What is it? What is it? Well, David has come to understand that there's one who sits on the throne of the universe. Are you ready for this? Who's way more beautiful than any ugly thing you'll ever face in your life. There is one who sits on the throne of the universe 
who has incalculable beauty, stunningly greater than anything ugly, dark thing you'll face in your life. He's beautiful in holiness. He's beautiful in faithfulness. He's beautiful in mercy. He's beautiful in forgiveness. He's beautiful in sovereignty. He's beautiful in patience. He's beautiful in kindness. He's beautiful in love. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Now, there's two things that you need to understand. Here's the first one. That he is beautiful for you by grace. He has unleashed that beauty on you by grace. The cross is not a moment of defeat. The cross is a fountain out of which flows the stunning beauty of the Redeemer onto his children. I love saying this. I'll love saying this 10 million years in eternity. I'm serious. All that God is, he is for us by grace. If you take the sum total of all of his gorgeous beauty, way beyond human words to describe, all of that is ours by grace. All that he is, he is for us by grace. He's not just beautiful. He's not just beautiful out there somewhere. He has unleashed through the work of his son this beauty on you by grace. See, what's the hope of the psalm? The psalm is that it's real because, listen, what this psalm is actually talking about, who this psalm is actually talking about is Jesus. The army was encamped against him. And he suffered and died ugly death so beauty would flow into our lives. Listen, despised and rejected of men, men hid their faces from him. I was thinking about this between services. Jesus isn't beautiful on the cross, is he? He's ugly. Body torn and ravaged. He became ugliness for us so beauty would be our experience. Did it willingly. Son of God. Willing to be scarred and rejected so we would know beauty. I would ask you again, what do you say to you when the unwanted, the unexpected, the hard enter your life? Maybe you're inflicted with more divine beauty amnesia than you think. To that end, 
I want to give you homework. Now, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pastor you here for a moment. Get out something to write on. I'm serious. Get out your iPhone or your iPad. Get something that you can take brief notes with. Because I'm, I'm deeply persuaded that the most important moment of this message is not when I'm on the stage. The most important moment of this message is when you leave this room. It's what you do with the truths that by God's grace you've heard this morning. And so I wanna, I wanna give you homework, I wanna give you four words. I am persuaded that if you nail these four words into your life, it will change you. It will change the way you live. You see, this passage appears radical to us, not because the faith of this passage is radical. It's not radical faith, it's just faith. And the fact that we think it's radical exposes the weakness in our faith. Do you get that? I think all the time things that are never intended to be radical in Scripture seem radical to us, and that's an indictment of where we are spiritually. So here's the four words. Here's the first one. These are four words to nail to every morning. Start your morning with gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Gaze. First word, gaze. You say, Paul, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. Well, here's what you need to understand. You actually have two vision systems in you as a human being. You have your physical eyes and the eyes of your heart. You can be physically blind. That's difficult, but you can live quite well. You can't be spiritually blind and live well. And so you need to focus the eyes of your heart on the beauty of your Redeemer. Let me help you. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, how about reading Isaiah 40? I love Isaiah 40. Because the gorgeous glory of God is depicted in that passage. Uh, the, the prophet stretches the human language as far as you can possibly stretch it. He says things like this. Who can hold the waters of the universe in the hollow of his hand? Now think about that. Go home and pour water into your hand and see what volume of water you can keep in your palm without it dripping out. Your Lord is so majestic in splendor, He can hold the entire waters of the universe in His hand and not a drop drips out. I love Isaiah 40. How about the last few chapters of Job where God has that very humbling, where were you when the foundations of creation were laid? Let me tell you a few things, Joby. And God rips back the curtains and he shows his spiritual son his beauty. Or how about Ephesians 1? I love Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 doesn't make you secure. <laughs> Nothing will. Because it shows the unstoppable saving plan of God through the ages. Start every day gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I'm not talking about your normal Bible reading. Do that too. But just focus the eyes of your heart on the beauty of the Lord. Second word, remember. Remember that that beauty doesn't just define you or God, but it redefines you as His child. 
Remember that that beauty is now your identity because that beauty has been unleashed on you by grace. Grace is a fountain that's been poured down on you. Talk to yourself. Talk to your heart. Make yourself remember. Third word, rest. Rest not because people like you, not because finances are good, not because your job is great or if you even have a job, not because your neighbors like you, not because you're healthy, but because God is. He's stunning in His beauty and He has poured His beauty down on you by grace. You better get used to arguing with your own heart. I love Psalm 42. That's what Psalm 42 is about. We get to eavesdrop by God's grace on a private conversation. The psalmist says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. That's a person arguing with his own heart. You get to eavesdrop on that because God wants you to know you need to do that too. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Remember that that beauty doesn't just define him, but it redefines you as his child. That beauty is yours by grace. Rest, because God is, and he's poured all that he is down on you by grace. Fourth word, now act, A-C-T. Go out and live in light of what you've been given by grace. Act with hope, act with faith, act with courage. Get your chin out of your chest, lift up your eyes, and say, I have reason for hope today. I have reason for courage today. so easy to get yourself down. It's so easy to have the wrong set of desires. No, I'm, I'm like you. I, I want a wife who says, of course, Paul, I agree with you. I've lived with the glory that is you. <laughs> I want children who say, yes, Father, I will forthwith go and obey because you, sir, are wise. I want to drive on roads paid for by other citizens who choose not to use them. Took you a while. I want neighbors who just moved into the neighborhood because I'm there. But here's the point. If that's all God's given you, it's a bad deal. God's not giving you less. He's giving you more. Listen, he may not give you the neighbor that you want, but he's giving you himself stunning in glory, stunning in beauty. And all that he is, he is for you by grace. Listen, you may say, I've never known that life. Or you may say, I've known that life, but I keep falling back. Listen, you don't have to hide in shame. You don't have to wallow in guilt. We've said this said this many times, the most significant moment of the suffering of Jesus was not physical, it was relational. It's that moment when the Father turned His back on the Son. And Jesus cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, hear this. Jesus took every shred of your rejection 
so that on your worst day, you would never again see the back of God's head. So in your struggle of faith, don't run from him. Run to him. He is beautiful in grace. He's beautiful in forgiveness. He's beautiful in patience. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, the grandeur of what we've just considered has still not been adequately explained by the words of this man. It's just too glorious. It's right right now for us to say that we love you. But it's even more important for us to confess that the greatest, fullest, deepest, most expansive joy in our lives is that we've been loved by you. You, beautiful Savior. You are a rock and a fortress, a sun and a shield, life and health and peace and forgiveness and truth and hope and reconciliation. Oh, it's majestic that you've showered that beauty down on us by grace. May we gaze upon your beauty. May we remember. May we rest. May we act with renewed hope and courage. We pray this in your sweet and strong name. O Lamb, O Savior, O King, Jesus. Amen. God is...